because Christianity is countercultural. It's mm. not cultural. So we're not doing the same thing as Beyonce, trying to reflect the culture and then yeah. build on that. We're actually doing something different. We're, we're listening to Jesus as he has mm. set um, up a new framework which sometimes can be confronting for adults and for young people. Mm. So we're not just trying to, as Karen said, we're listening uh, to young people and encouraging them to listen to God. So not just listen to us, but we're, we're all trying to listen to what God has to say. Welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Resolver podcast. It is fantastic to have you along with us, whether you're listening or watching. And I am joined, as usual, by Stu. How are you, Stu? Hello, Joel. And uh, we have a special guest with us joining us today is um, Karen, uh, the teaching pastor of Soul Revival Church. Yeah. Welcome. Thank you. Thank lovely you for, to be here. Thank you for, yeah, it's lovely to have you yeah. on here. Are you excited? Uh, I am. That's going to hang on for the ride, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Now, uh, we are, as usual, in this season, talking about ministering in the 2010s and the 2020s. And we're looking at that through the lens of different musical artists that have shaped that time. Now, guys, uh, I'm quite excited about this one because I've done a lot of research and I've been very interested in this particular <laughs> artist, um, which is Beyonce, which is, um, is that is she high at the top of your playlist, Karen? Uh, I, no, I can't say that she is. I... You asked me earlier of, you know, what am I a honeybee or a killer bee? I didn't even know what the <laughs> references meant, so I'm sorry, no. We'll get <laughs> on that. Oh, yeah, that's great, because we'll get on to that later about who the, the beehive, as they call it, or mm. is it her, her most avid fans. Yeah. Um, Stu, any, any plans to put uh, Beyonce into your rotation? Yeah, I, I don't mind listening to Beyonce songs, but I wouldn't go as far as to say that I'm uh, a fan and I'm right over the top of all her discography. Mm. I, I'm not right over the whole canon of Beyonce, yes. but uh, I, I do I'm enjoy saying. songs from time mm. to time. I like the Put a Ring on it. That's a fun yeah. song. Is it? I mean, there's songs I'm certainly familiar with. They're not on my playlist. Well, we we hear it. That's the yeah, thing, isn't it? It's yeah. like we hear her a lot, but maybe she's yeah. not probably yeah. our favourite artist. No, she's very talented, yeah. and yes. I really appreciate her ability. Yeah. yeah, I think she's an exceptional artist. I think yeah. she's, she's yeah. quite um, yeah. quite amazing in the amount of uh, work that she has put out. I think it's exceptional. Mm. Um, and we we talk about always on the Shogazorba. I know that Karen, you've listened to a lot of Shogazorbas. You've been very kind to, uh, <laughs> but you would know that we always talk about a cultural artifact. Yes, um, Stu, you mentioned um, single ladies. <laughs> is there a reason that you like that song? Oh, I really that's what like we picked. it. I, I don't know. I just it, when it comes on the it's, it's on the radio, catchy. yeah, it yeah. just gets my, gets me thinking it's a fun song. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. So you did put a ring on a single lady at some. point. I did put a ring on a single <laughs> lady. <laughs> actually, that is true. Yes, Louise uh, has a ring on her finger. Yes. It's got a ring. Yeah, that's great. Um, it's, it has got a uh, very interesting film clip where it's all done in black and white. Right. And then they've got that special dance that's very popular with everyone. You know, mm -hmm. where he goes oh. Oh, 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 That's a oh, bit of the song oh, I like. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh. We'll get if Dave, the producer, can chuck in a few um, clips of that because yeah, it's quite, a, quite an exceptional. Yeah, um, I reckon it's a really catchy song, actually. Yeah, really yeah, really yeah catchy. very catchy. Do you enjoy it? Do you enjoy it? Okay. Oh, when it comes on, it is definitely gets my attention. <laughs> Get you <laughs> moving? I can't see that I get into the dance, but yeah. <laughs> we might have to learn it. <laughs> we, we may all have to learn. We could do a special edition of the Shock Absorber oh, where we, yeah. we uh, choreograph a, an episode. Yeah, probably no. the lowest views we've ever got. <laughs> <if> we <laughs> did. Probably. Um, what was cool, though, is that the reason that we choose chosen Beyonce is that one of the five artists that uh, YouTube channel Polyphonic, um, run by a musical journalist in Canada, uh, he chose to 
five five artists, and she is one of them. Um, and interestingly, he describes. Beyonce is a pure cultural force, mm. which I think is really interesting. And then goes on to say, she ascended to the throne of pop music more than just a critical success. Beyonce became part of and helped to drive the political discussions of the era, which is around mm. that 2010, 2020 time. Um, I thought we should, should we get into a little bit of background about yeah. Beyonce first so we kind of know where we come, where yeah, she's I coming from? So. I, I think it, just before you do that, mm. I think it's a really cool phrase that's used on that polyphonic uh, YouTube because it's really helpful for our purposes as, we're trying to get our head around how our culture has changed in the last mm. 10 years and, and where it might be going. And uh, to have an artist like Beyonce is really helpful uh, signpost towards uh, mm. quite significant cultural change as she's been pointing to it and part of mm. making that change. So, yeah, I think going back and looking at her uh, career would be really helpful. Mm. Yes. And choosing that song is interesting too from the perspective that, like all of us, um, she's a complex human being mm-hmm. who through her art you can see some of the major influences and her interests. And so, you know, there's there's themes of the fact that she's singing about Put a Ring on It. There's mm. s- sort of some themes of morality in there mm. as well as other things, feminism and other things that mm. um, come out in her music. So, yeah, it's an interesting place to start. Mm. It's also just as um, we've we've looked at Taylor Swift and David Bowie. They do the same thing. Mm. It's a, their experiences of their lives, depending on their age, experiences, and everything that's gone on. It, you see how that translates into their music and how it changes and adapts over time. Mm. So I think Beyonce yeah. is doing that as well. But she did. She was born in Houston, Texas. That's where she started. Uh, her name is her maiden name was Beyonce Knowles, and then became Knowles Carter after she married Jay Z. Another became a very big power couple in um, in probably an even more of a cultural force. And then so she originally started in a a group called Destiny's Child, which we would probably probably all heard plenty of songs from there. They were originally called Girls Time, but then... I didn't know that. But that started in 1990. Oh, really? Yeah, so she has been performing... Mm. In a group since she was nine years old. Wow! Which wow. is there's a lot going. There's a lot to uh, there's a lot of experiences mm. to, to talk about there. Uh, they signed their first record deal in 1997, and then ended up disbanding in 2006. So then she went on to her solo career when she released uh, the first album that came out was called Dangerously in Love in 2003. But people would definitely know the song Crazy in Love, which is a mm. very popular song you know, with Jay Z. And I did hear an interesting story about that song was that the night before she had to turn that album in to her record company, um, she was like, I don't know what's going on. She'd started, she'd, um, her and Jay-Z had entered into a relationship uh, about a year prior to that on a, um, of 03 Bonnie and Clyde, which is a song by Jay-Z. But um, she's like, oh, there's just something missing in Crazy in Love. So three o'clock in the morning, she calls Jay-Z in the night before she has to turn the album in and then says, oh, can you put a line? He improvises the whole thing. Just there on the spot. Yep, and that's what they released in the album and the single, which was pretty pretty wild. I mean, it shows how good an artist Jay-Z Very talented. is. Yeah, it shows mm. the talent, doesn't it? Yeah, it's exactly. That. And and to recognise that there's something missing, you know, for her to know this is this song's not ready. Mm. That's, yeah, and that's, um, that's something I also picked up is that there's there's sometimes a little bit of conjecture about how many songs she wrote and all that kind of stuff because she works with lots of different producers. Mm. But then there's a, there's a vast array of those producers saying, no, no, she's a incredible artist and writer in her own right but she's a really collaborative like she really mm. wants to get other people's ideas um so she's done that across her uh her career um the other thing that was interesting though that in 2010 she she released quite a few albums so there was um let me just have a look there's so dangerously in love we talked about 
then B-Day in 2006, and then 2008 with an a album called I Am Sasha Fierce. And that seemed to be, mark a bit of a turning point in her career. So she went on a big uh, globe-trotting tour. So she took a nine-month hiatus. She travelled around Europe, Australia. She went and saw the Great Wall of China, Egyptian pyramids, uh, went to English music festivals. That's she, cool. She actually ended the relationship, uh, management relationship with her father. So her father was the ones that was managing Destiny's Child and also her career up until that point. Mm. And then, um, so it was a real turning point, as I said, and then she actually recorded 60 songs after that travelling time because she wanted to get lots of experiences and then whittled that down into 12, which became her album, Four. Um, and her that was actually her, her attempt and very much like Taylor Swift and David Bowie we've talked about before, um, that she wanted to change the sound on radio. Like she was, it was almost like she was... You remember we've talked about two episodes ago, Stu, that David Bowie was passing the baton on mm. to um, mm. the new artists and perhaps uh, the end of the rock god myth and all that kind of... It's almost like she was picking up. She's like, I need to be the one that changes music now. Mm. So then checking the discography, she then uh, releases number... F- uh, it's called Four in 2011. And then then we enter really into the 2013s where there is another almost shift into how she's um, putting out music. Um, so in 2013, there was an album called Beyonce that she released in December, and that was a surprise album drop. No one knew it was happening. So um, And every song, there was 14 of them, had its own music video, and then it dealt with a lot more darker themes than she'd really talked about before. And then April 2016 is Lemonade, and that, that's the most one of her most critically acclaimed albums, and that was, in my opinion, when I was listening to her music, that was my favourite album um, because I thought it was, it was just um, a very very interesting uh, perspective on a lot of things. It was um, dealing with a lot of things about Jay-Z and I thought it was it was a fantastic album. I actually listened to it twice through because I really enjoyed it. And then, there, and then she went into another phase almost where she starts doing what she calls visual albums. So it was um, a lot of uh, paired with documentaries. Uh, there was the Homecoming, which is a Netflix documentary that has a live album as well that comes with that, and I'm sure we can get into these later. But then there's also um, the final visual album that she released last year in 2020, which was um, Black is King. So in looking across the discography, um, it's, she's had a very storied career, and it continues, obviously. Um, it's almost like there's three stages in that that. Uh, discography issue would you agree with that mm, I, it, yeah it, again like i don't um pretend to be an expert on beyonce uh, but i i'm really interested how she has that early uh stage of her career like when she's in destiny's trial and she's sort of discovering who she is so to speak and then the 2000s is kind of a, a new period of time where she goes out on her own but then in 2010 which is the period we're most interested in 2010 up to now there seems to be a marked change um she's incredibly successful she's just won some more grammys and the 2008 album was really quite well received by the critics and by the public as well and that's when she starts to i think find her voice even more and she starts to speak out um on issues on feminism and black lives Mm. matter and interesting issues of culture that we will get to a bit later but that that early stage i find really fascinating how um the backstory of how her dad got her into music and that story of uh, their family. I don't know if you guys know much about that background, but I find that a really interesting. Yeah, so I, I believe that her mum and dad were very much integral to her career. They, um, at, I think she was doing talent shows from even before she was part of uh, the original Destiny's Child lineup. Um, so it, it's very much into that um, space of 
doing talent shows, trying to get noticed, and a lot of uh, I think there would probably be a lot of pressure going on in that in that environment. Mm. Um, and then it's interesting that in that next section, she felt she needed to break away from her dad's management. And it's interesting that that happen, seems to happen with a lot of uh, people who have uh, managed to find a, v- a large amount of success. Like we talk about maybe um, Tiger Woods or someone that his dad was very much pushed him to be a golfer and, and drove him really, really hard. Um, someone else I think of is Lewis Hamilton, the Formula One driver. His dad was very integral in getting his career started, helping him get there. The, um, I know that Lewis Hamilton's dad, he had four jobs at one time just to pay for his mm. motorsport career. So, But then he had to, he felt that to move on to the next stage of his career, he had to move away from being in his dad's dad being in his inner circle mm. all the time and all that kind of thing. So yeah. it's, a, it's a theme that often happens with uh, very successful people, Karen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to reflect on what's – who's driving the activity because, you know, I think we all would probably be able to think of examples of, of people who are driven but it's the – the parents who are passionate about that thing and they're driving their children um, and then others who it's the child who's really interested in the thing and the parents do everything they can to support mm. that passion that the child has and um, it, I think it's interesting that yeah, obviously Beyonce is someone who is very driven and has gone on from breaking that relationship of management with her father to be even more driven. So, you know, you could probably... Maybe there was drive from both parties. But I, I just remember reflecting on my own life. The, um, You know, so, there was a time in my life where I was really... Uh, wanted to be a doctor and I was really considering going down that yeah, path. Right. But I couldn't work out because it was also my mother's passion. Mm. Um, I couldn't work out if it was my drive or my mum's. And so I ended up not doing it. Uh, and I think it's interesting looking at these types of people who have gone on to be really successful at the thing they started um, and what ha- what is the thing that's driving them. Um, but she's obviously very, you know, I know that later on we'll probably get into talking about she was very passionate about trying to do something new and make a difference in the world. Um, and so I think you can see that drive right from the beginning. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Mm. And and you can you can see that like she's continued to have a thriving career mm. after that decision. Yeah. But then you look at some other artists that have had a similar set situation with their you know their father or whatever driving them or parents driving them. Like the, the Britney Spears story mm. is very tragic and sad. That um, at the moment that's that story is still being played out as mm. Britney tries to get away from the influence of the father. Uh, and and also there's that um, really negative impact that Michael Jackson's father had on him mm. when he was growing up in the Jackson 5. He was obviously driven really hard in the 70s yeah. and although he you know, obviously had a, uh, a very successful career in the 80s, he also had a really dramatic fall as well. So it can be quite toxic as well. But mm. Beyonce seems to be thriving in, mm. in a really healthy way in her attempt to express herself and take control of her life, I think. Mm. Well, that time that she ended um, the management situation with her father, um, the album at that time in 2008 was the same year that she um, decided to end that uh, management with him. Um, that was I Am Sasha Fierce, the album, and she created a portion of that album to be an alter ego. Mm. And so perhaps she said in uh, interviews later on that, she needed to create that person or that persona in order to help find herself, and mm. then she, and then later on she said, "I'm done with that persona. Yeah. Like I, I now have discovered myself, which is yeah. kind of what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, like it might have been, a to, yeah, work it out. Is it mine? Is it, is it my parents? And yeah, that alter ego 
she obviously used to help her uh, yeah, answer that question. And also got married yeah. to Jay-Z in mm. that year as well. So in 2008. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So it's a very um, pivotal year for her, it seems. Um, Actually, that was the year I got introduced to Jay-Z. Did you? If I remember correctly. Yeah, I was at a U2 concert in Sydney and Jay-Z came on as a support act. I think it was 2008. He was, yep. I thought you were introduced to him personally. Like he's like, hey, this, no. is, this is <laughs> no, this no, is Sean I, Carter. Yeah, it was. I just stood there in the crowd while while he finished his act, so I could get onto you two. So <laughs> I wasn't appreciating the moment at the time. But now I look back on that and I think, wow, that was two thousand and eight. Like that was a big year in his life. And mm. I came to understand his music a bit later on, but I was. Um, yeah, not aware of the import of it at the time. And another inspiration and, and um, driving force for her, I think, because she constantly um, references him as an inspiration to her as well mm. because he's done the same thing. He's come from a very like a, a very difficult background and upbringing yeah, right. of running drugs and all yeah. that kind of thing and then became an incredibly successful artist but it was also raised up a whole lot of artists behind him too. So mm. Kanye West mm. owes a lot to... Jay Z as well. Yeah, that's that fascinating, isn't it? Because we're going to get on to Kanye West in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's in, right. In the podcast, <laughs> yeah. Um, so then that's the turning point, is that then as we get into the 2010s, she's got three albums that all went platinum. Um, the four, as we spoke about before, had the, um, she starts to talk about a lot of important issues such as feminism. She's got the song Run the World, Girls. Um, mm. And maybe that came out that she's been traveling, she was traveling the world prior to that and she felt like she wanted to change the world and had the ability to. She had the voice and the platform to do that. Um, then 2013, Beyonce, that album is a surprise drop. She thinks that, but she's mm. built up such a, a back um, catalogue of, of work that she feels like she can drop it. And then, as I said, in 2016, Lemonade is a is a, an album basically about um, Jay-Z's infidelity, which is a fantastic, mm. um, not, not a fantastic situation, sorry, but it's a fantastic insight into how she was feeling at the time. Mm. Um, I don't know if, you have any, if you've listened to any of those albums, but mm. in Lemonade, she partners with people like Kendrick, and Kendrick Lamar and even Jack White, which is who's one of my favorite artists, and that's actually my favorite song on the album. But it's it talking it's talk about don't hurt yourself, and it's like if you hurt me, you'll end up hurting yourself anyway. So she's really delving into a lot more uh, difficult and um, hard harder to maybe express um, situations and subjects. But then she's actually really making it a, a real important part of her life and letting people get access into that. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that particular time. Oh, I think I think that's really interesting, Joel. I love it that she goes on holidays to, to break away from that Sasha Fierce uh, persona that she's developed to help her to find her voice, mm-hmm. that she then goes on a holiday and she finds a voice after that holiday. But what I find fascinating about the holiday, she writes... 60 songs while she's on holiday mm. and then mm. she's able to take 12 of those mm. that are so good that she can make the next album come out after she's been on holiday so i think that's mm. a real insight into her work ethic and her ability and capacity it's incredible um that that shift towards finding her own voice and then looking to to bring change i think is a big theme mm. uh for her in the 2010s and i think it is a theme of the 2010s that we've identified that um Interestingly, like David Bowie had different personas. She started off with that um, and then she changes out of that. And we talked about Black Star, David Bowie's last album in the 2010s where he he almost says, yeah, this is the end of the rock god myth from the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s and now there's a new generation coming up. And we see in Beyonce, Beyonce what that new generation is saying and who they are. So while she... Um, 
does that. She moves away from that idea of having a persona like David Bowie did and even Taylor Swift had that persona as well. And um, she she's herself and now we hear her voice and she's really interested in those issues you raised. I, w- I wonder though whether she is herself. Like I think one of the things that I observe happen often for women um, is and you know she's going through this process of trying to identify who she is and what's the difference that she wants to make in the world um, and she's broken away from the influence of a male figure in her life, a significant one, her father, mm. um, that I think sometimes what happens is you, we, you see a pendulum swing that, and I know that Beyonce's been criticised for being quite aggressive in this album, really assertive in, you know, sort of, sort of saying women can change the world but I think sometimes it's the exploration of how how do we do it um, and I think that she's making a statement about that as well and you know obviously we know across the world the difference that girls can actually make who, when they're empowered in the world they in you know sort of the aid and development world it's really clearly known that you give aid to a girl and it influences the whole community um, and so yeah I, I think it's interesting that watching those pendulum swings that um, trying to break out of well, or identify what, how do I make a difference in the world that sometimes it can go a bit far. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see it as she continues to have that influence and that political voice, whether it'll continue to be as aggressive or whether it'll, she'll find her way of being able to, mm. you know, share a message in a way that's palatable but, um, and, and maybe more people will engage with, but obviously she has no problem with engaging a lot of people <laughs> in, uh, in following that. But... Mm. Um, yeah, I think when you've been in a situation where there's a form of barrier, oppression, whatever, um, as you try and break out of that and find your voice, it can be a bit clunky sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because we, we sometimes um, have really high expectations of the people that uh, we follow and sometimes we put them on a pedestal, mm. but it's good to recognise that we're all humans and yeah. that we're all having a go and... Yeah, she's um, obviously able to to make a new start, like musically and also yeah. politically, I suppose. But mm. like musically, she's she really started off by wanting to shift the radio style and really yeah. change popular music, which in and of itself is a massive thing. Like for her to have the confidence to do that and then do it, like mm. in that album, she does. But then also to then speak into those topics that uh, up until that time weren't really spoken about that much. I I. I don't know what your thoughts on mm. that, Karen, are, but I think yeah. she's helped to create a space for people to talk about these yeah. things. In a similar way that you, you guys were talking about last week with Taylor Swift, it's not mm. just her own voice. She's trying to right, yeah, create a platform mm. for really other helpful, people to yeah. have yeah. a voice too. In, and she definitely um, starts a sort of feminism tilt, um, I think is... Uh, know evident in there but um yeah but it's it's not just about her voice here yeah, trying to get give women and girls encourage girls to step up and have a voice yeah and that's such an, a significant tilt too and a significant new stage of feminism mm. that mm. we now talk about a third wave fem- feminism in in the 21st century that there was the first wave feminism uh with the suffragettes in, in mm. the early days and then there was the 70s with the second wave feminism which was making huge important strides and now there's a new wave of feminists coming through. So I suppose Beyonce mm. is part of that. Yeah. Mm. In, well, in 2013, in an interview in Vogue, she said she considered herself to be a modern-day feminist mm. and would later her line herself more publicly with the movement, sampling uh, a, um, something that a Nigerian author, and now I'm going to try and get this name right, Ch- Chimanda Ngozi Adichie, mm-hmm. 
And she and there's a sample on one of her songs that said we should all mm. be feminists, and that was from a, t- a TED talk. Uh, it was in the song Flawless. Mm. Sorry. So she is uh, obviously in that time starting to align herself, but also it seems to be, as you said, Karen, exploring the mm. ways to do that yeah. rather than mm. I know exactly how to do this. Mm. I think. Mm. Um, because then after doing aligning herself with all those different, uh, not all those, a, a number of movements, then you, then you get to that point in Lemonade in 2016 where she's like, my my husband has been um, unfaithful. unfaithful. Mm. Um, now what, what do I do? And it's dealing mm. with another problem that obviously a lot of people in, in the world have, have dealt with and can identify with that. Mm. And then the next album is actually her and Jay-Z release an album together as a like a um as a new almost like a new artist as called the carters which is saying oh we're actually back together and the album's called everything is love Mm. and then in 2019 she does what she goes homecoming which is basically well i see it as a thing of like i'm back to where i was and i'm more of who i am but also i'm a much more developed person and artist because the reason i mean the netflix line is this intimate in-depth look at beyonce's celebrated 2018 Coachella performance reveals the emotional road from creative concept to cultural movement but then she called it homecoming because there's that traditional um, uh, event in America at colleges and Mm. churches and schools where there's a tradition of welcoming back former students and members so that's why if you look if you actually watch it she's got these huge um, metal bleachers behind her full of um, like big band like, you know, mm. the drums and, and a lot of um, brass instruments and stuff. And she's dancing in front of it and it's basically saying, I'm back to the person who I wanted to be. Mm. And then, but also bringing all those things that she's mm. learned through all that, learnings. all mm. the learnings into that into that performance, which is, it's a fantastic performance. I really enjoyed watching. I don't know if you've caught it, Stu, but you no, might, might like to. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I haven't got to the documentary in that yet, but that, that's interesting that how she... Um, articulated that breakup with Jay Z, Karen. It's mm. like a very public pa- and a painful yeah. thing. It's really for brutal. Us, some of the yeah. some of the lyrics. Yeah, I don't know if you have you listened to any of the songs. Um, no, <laughs> I mean, mate, possibly, but no, I don't. <laughs> not that I'm aware of. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, from hearing um, people speak about it, it was she was very raw emotionally mm. and sharing that. Um, and but it, again, I think it, the album shows a journey, doesn't it? Through the pain of it, acknowledging and being very real about the pain of um, infidelity, of, you know, being let down like that, someone that, you know, you thought you could trust that that's broken, to coming to the point of um, sort of overcoming that obstacle and there being redemption on the other side of it. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an, it's an interesting... And thinking about the influences, obviously she has a background where there is some faith influences in there. And so there's a, there's a bit of a, um, which is, you know, a statement that's quite countercultural. You know, our, our culture would expect, you know, and tells us that when, you know, if you're in a relationship and there's an affair, it ends in destruction. It doesn't end in redemption. And so this was quite a, a statement, putting it on an album to show it doesn't have to be that way. I'm making a statement against that culture that says actually there's a there's place for redemption on the other side of this. Mm. Wow, it's fascinating. Mm. Yeah. It's very strong again, isn't it? Like it mm. just is very admirable to see her uh, to be able to to, to be reconcile vulnerable and vulnerable and at the same time very be vulnerable. vulnerable. Yeah. Like it's incredible. Like she's not yeah. only trying to sort things out behind the scenes. I mean, mm. we all know that in our personal lives things can get really chaotic and incredibly emotionally mm. draining and to be able to continue to produce art in that context yeah. is amazing and to produce art about that topic mm. is is quite 
quite uh, yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah, not to wait till you've worked through it and then reflect back on it, but mm. to actually be raw in the moment and share that. Yeah. And we are talking about with Taylor Swift last week that the way to connect with the audience, uh, one of the uh, sociologists we were looking at before, Ian Hussey, was saying that, that you can look at cultures through certain lenses and see certain themes coming out of cultures. And one of the themes that we're seeing again this week that we saw last time with Taylor Swift is this idea of egalitarianism, that like this openness to share your personal life with people is, is very, as we'll talk about in a minute, very postmodern that it's not a very modern thing to show your private life to, to, the, to the world, but it, it's a very egalitarian uh, impulse to say to your fans, I'm going to bring you on this journey with mm. me. They feel a lot more connected to her as a result and she has done that in a sustainable way that hasn't ended up destroying her. I mean, the, the public gaze can actually be incredibly consuming. I mean, at the moment there's a lot of controversy around Netflix's new... Uh, depiction of Diana uh, and obviously we know that Diana, uh, Princess Diana, um, had a dreadful relationship with the media and it was almost mm. like you were watching her trying to live a private life mm. but they're constantly trying to pry the windows open and open the blinds to see mm. into her life and this constant gaze of the photographers that ended up leading to being a major factor towards her death that they were chasing her into a tunnel and mm. to try and find out some kind of information about her and you know, now there's a controversy around should Harry say more about Netflix depicting his mother in a negative light even. So even after she's passed away, there's still this con constant um, narrative around who is Diana, how much should mm. we know, what should we say about her life. But what's fascinating about Taylor Swift and Beyonce is they've actually opened the doors to their life and opened the windows and opened the blinds and there's almost like, I'm sure there's a lot of paparazzi around her and trying to get glimpses of her life but it's a bit harder for them to be in control of her if she's in control of the narrative so i think it's fascinating that as she she says in the, in the song run the world she says girls run the world my persuasion can run the nation mm -hmm. and i think that's really interesting that that sense of being in control is something you can observe in lemonade that she's in control of this situation where she's a very public figure and she's having a, a real turmoil in a private mm. life and yet she's able to balance that it's incredibly strong incredible strength there yeah. perhaps this way but it's a new way of dealing with it isn't it it's yeah a, it is that you know thing that david bowie was saying there's a, there's going to be a new generation that mm. does things differently and one of the one of the things is the private life and the public life is very blurred yeah mm. and perhaps that's the way she's manages it herself is by um if i can control the narrative then i can at least um, Maybe not yeah. be have people prying to the parts I don't want the Maybe, people to yeah. to pry into. I know that she rarely gives interviews, for example. Right, but right. then she's, but then she still opens the window in that in that sense to in through her music That's rather interesting, than yeah. mm. just doing interviews and because uh, I know that it's like the creation of the the Beehive, which is spelled B E B E Y H I V E, is that it, that that came out of a forum where it was trying to look at. Uh, what Beyonce was doing, where she was, what she was doing, and they had like they started with the link of uh, one of the people in her entourage who was helping her with a website, and he was tweeting out little bits of information, and then he ended up being on the on the forum, and like it, it all started from something called Beyonce World, um, and it had um, uh, it so it came out of the demise of Beyonce World because Beyonce Camp actually engaged with that quite quite regularly, so she's she's finding those parts to actually engage with to build the correct narrative, I think. And then that Beyonce will post an unflattering photo, so she just cut it off. 
So then this, there was like this whole group of people looking for another place to congregate and that's where the beehive started and then it's expanded into like other areas of the internet but that's where it started. Like people that are at the, stro- at the shows live stream it on their phone so people on the beehive can watch it at home. Um, and then they also figure out where she's shooting music videos, even though she keeps it a secret, so they can just get one photo. Um, uh, there's, uh, there's about 17,000 members, apparently, that's part of that, that group. Um, uh, and they often come after Beyonce's distractors, so she's leveraging that, and then like her fans are just deciding to take that to, and didn't you to say that degree. just like like actual bees, they have different roles in the bee yeah, life. Like so some of them are about <laughs> building Beyonce's image and some of them are about yeah. attacking her opponents mm. or something? Yeah, so you have the worker bees. So there's three main types apparently. There's the worker bees who just feed the forum's most popular threads with information about Beyonce and little snippets of news that they know about and they can trumpet that on other social media platforms. There's the honey bees who just flood comment sections with their um, – with basically how in awe they are of Beyonce. And then there's the killer bees who take stock of whom they should target next. Wow. So a lot of the time is if somebody says something um, about Beyonce that is considered uh, detrimental to her image, they will flood the social media media. Uh, social media pages um but the funny thing is that they'll put lots of the bee emojis like just like huge comments that have got lines and lines of just bees um and they'll it's a often it's a really coordinated and targeted attack so i don't think she likes to identify with that part but she identifies with that that small group of people that actually seems to disseminate a lot of news about her anyway which is a different way of doing it for example having to deal with like diana had to deal with the paparazzi so she seemed a little bit more out of control i don't know what you think about that karen did you did you feel like uh diana came across like she was a bit of a victim of the 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 media attention or have you got any thoughts on that uh, n- no thoughtful thoughts on that. Um, <laughs> Didn't pay a lot of attention, did I? <laughs> no, but I mean, the way that in, in recent, you know, um, The Crown and, and various recent um, pieces of, you know, document not documentary shows, um, I guess that she is depicted a bit like that, that she wasn't in as much control as it appears that Beyonce is mm. of the narrative. She was very much... Um, well, it, yeah, she, I think she's being portrayed as mm. more of a victim of it than than using it to portray a particular persona. And do you think the social media piece is new? Do you think that's helping Beyonce? Something that that Diana and others in earlier generations didn't have that ability to speak for themselves mm. and not do a press conference. Yeah. Like Diana had to pick a someone she thought she could trust as an interviewer to tell yeah. her story whereas yeah. Beyonce can use social media and yeah. she has all these fans that are protecting her. Yeah. Do you think that's different? Yeah, oh, well, absolutely because there's not one um, or a small group of people controlling the narrative. It's mm. it's anybody can have have a say and in, you know, a movement like the, the Beehive, there's, <laughs> um, there's a lot of people that you can influence quickly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating how co- – mm. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It's like it's not even taking a photo and then putting it in a magazine. It's yeah. actually instant. Yeah. Filming a concert. I mean, yeah. I remember the days yeah. – I don't know if you remember going to concerts, but they used to tell us not to record it because yeah. they were trying to control the dissemination. Yeah. Now it's almost like they want them to record yeah. it. Like, well, that's true, but now they also uh, – a lot of stand-up comedians now give like have special bags that you put your phone in. And oh, they right. lock. Okay. And yeah, I right. actually had okay. this when I went to see Chris Rock 
and they put your phone in it and they lock it until the end of the show and then unlock it and you can take it back out. Okay, wow. Mm. Yeah, which is pretty... It's different. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit uh, draconian sometimes, but I found it also interesting that we talked about all those things that she did on, on Lemonade, but also at, at the Super Bowl 50 when it came to... Um, performing at the Super Bowl. She's performed at the Super Bowl twice in the 2010s and this was the second time and she basically debuted the new song Formation from the Lemonade album but she also very ma- made a very strong alignment with the African American movement that was mm. happening at the time um, and she, she actually came out um, in full regalia inspired by the Black Panthers to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Black Panthers mm. um, and that was considered somewhat controversial because the NFL is very... Like you cannot do any mm. make any political statements in any performances that happen. So um, I found that kind of interesting that she's now. This is another thing that's very important to obviously. Even in uh, uh, the Beyonce album, she talked about the darker themes of um, miscarriage because she had a miscarriage mm. prior to having her daughter Blue Ivy. Um, there's a lot of insecurities and motherhood. Now in now in Lemonade, she's dealing with Jay Z's infidelity, but then also identifying herself with the African American issues and also things like Colin Kaepernick, who um, kneeled. He's a he was an NFL quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers and started kneeling during the national anthem in order to protest uh, against police brutality. So she started to be really part of that as well. And then I know that both. Her and Jay-Z have donated to the Black Lives Movement chapters yeah. in all different areas as well. So she's really trying to do the similar, possibly do a similar thing to Taylor Swift in terms of the egalitarianism is that I have this platform. Mm. I need to, first of all, discover who myself is, but then also I need to help other people and bring other people along with me. Um, and possibly having that community aspect too that you talked about previously, Karen, of... Uh, I'm not going to do this on my own. I'm going to yeah. I'm going to raise women up because this is what yeah. I really believe in. Yeah, oh, there, there's clearly intentionality about it, isn't it? Like mm. as opposed to you, you brought up, you know, Lady Di before. Um, I don't think there was an intentional message that she was trying to portray in the media, but there's very much an intentionality. Well, it appears with Beyonce, doesn't it? Mm. That and whether it's part of her um, identity formation as she's starting to look at all of the things that have influenced her and the things that are in her heritage. So, you know, actually exploring, you know, the sort of different black, you know, sort of movements in music in the past. She's bringing those in and... um, But, yeah, like being very intentional about I'm going to... I've got a platform that I'm going to use to talk about feminist issues but also about sort of Black Lives Matter type issues. Mm -hmm. That There's some real intentionality about that. Yeah, I find it really interesting that particularly with the motherhood issue, Karen, mm. that that's a very personal yep. uh, issue, but also part of that uh, mm. feminist um, yep. uh, idea that she's putting forward. Mm. Uh, do, do, you, do you have any any thoughts about um, her attempts to talk about having a career and being mm. a mother at the same time? Yep. Like that, that's been a journey for women, hasn't yeah. it, over the last uh, 40 or so yeah, years? Yeah, and I, I think that when one of the albums, I don't know if... I, if it was um, Lemonade or after that, the um, that there seems to be a real monogamy and real motherhood theme that's sort of weaving through a lot of that. Um, I, I think you know she's a mother in a different time than I when you know I first became a mother. But I think that some of the prevailing issues for women who choose to also have a career um, are that there's judgment no matter where you look, different forms of judgment. So I experienced you know even within the church there would be a group of people who would think you should stay home with your child Um, and there would be pressure 
from society from that group of society for that uh and not equally there would be pressure on the other side you know yeah you should do what you're skilled to do you should be in the workforce and there's that pressure as well and, and in society i think women are portrayed in all sorts of ways and so there's societal pressure too so i think beyonce is making real statements about um you know it from the that girl song and through some of the themes that are if in these. If I were a boy, that's a, the one that she really just, yeah. Yeah, like there, there's, a, there's a different experience of life um, that, you know, that is, if you're a girl, if you're a boy, there is different experience. And I think she's using her platform to say that there's societal pressure that shapes us in certain ways, but we can, we can actually take control of the narrative um, and we can, you know, we can do anything. We can rule the world. We can, you know, that type of, those types of messages are certainly there. Um, but I think it is in context, in the context of there's real pressure. And it's pressure from all sorts of different expectations and angles. Um, and people navigate that in different ways. Mm. But I think as a woman, and, you know, you guys can reflect on your experience. I'm not sure that it's only women that feel this, but there is guilt that follows you for all sorts of different things like if I make this choice I feel guilty with this group of people if I make this choice I feel a different sort of guilt and um, that can be really disempowering that guilt so yeah part maybe part of her um, intention is to help people make choices without bringing that guilt with them yeah Yeah. that's really helpful it's interesting isn't it that she she gets back to work really quickly after mm. she has a baby to to, yep. to sort of embrace both sides of her identity that yeah. she's a mother and she also yep. is a, a singer as well. Yeah. In yeah. The, in or well, in Homecoming, which is the 2019 Netflix documentary and album, uh, it's uh, it's a live performance, and as I said, it had all the high school bleachers behind it. It's shot over two weekends at Coachella in 2018. She was originally scheduled to do 2017 and then had to cancel because she fell surprisingly pregnant with twins. Mm. But then it also, in between the live performances, has she wrote, directed, and executive produced it herself. So after having twins, she's then trying to, in her opinion, needs to get into shape, direct, write, direct, and executive produce this incredible mm. production, and then also perform it as well. So it's it was, incredible. It, yeah, and it has all these little parts in between of how she she managed to get there, and she actually. Her diet basically consisted of fruit and vegetables. She was just, I'm like, no meat. She's like, no meat, no dairy, uh, no fish. No, like there was just, that was all she was eating. So um, when I was watching it with my wife, she was like, she must be hungry. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a really interesting insight. Mm. Yeah. She must have been hungry. And yeah. then and then she's bringing through those that African-American things too. She mm. was the first um, African-American woman to headline Coachella. Um, she says in the documentary, I wanted to be a positive celebration of African-American culture and bring our culture to Coachella, which was, I mm. thought it was a really fascinating approach. Yeah. Um, uh, she said, I studied my history, I studied my past, I put every mistake, all of my triumphs, all of my 22 career into a two-hour homecoming performance. So she's creating her own homecoming. So like, I'm back, I'm, I'm back to the person that I, I wanted to be and, and you know, dealing with a lot of things and... and, and Motherhood is so difficult mm. as when you're thrown into it straight away when you're having a baby, and then she's had twins, and then she's had yeah. this incredible career. Like, there's a lot going on for her. Yeah, but I, but in an interesting sort of way, I wonder how much pressure that additional pressure that put, puts on women. Like, look at what Beyonce is able to achieve. You know, you you should be too. You know, so right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's like interesting. Yeah, she's almost become like a superstar. Well, at yeah, that, and know, most of our sort of most thing. of our lives are not. Yeah, like she's so driven, and but also probably has a whole lot of help. Mm. You know that we don't. Yeah, see. a lot of money yeah. too. Yeah, and so I think sometimes it can backfire that 
that real desire to empower people can also put pressure on people, you know. So I know a lot of younger women would probably look at her and go, I need to aspire to be able to do it all as well. I need to be a, you know, great mum and a great whatever I do in the workplace. And mm. that's a lot of pressure that people, that society's putting on us yeah. as well. Yeah, it um, is. Have you, have you had to deal with that sort of pressure yourself oh, when, abs- when you've absolutely. run your own business and yeah, yeah. now as a pastor as well? And absolutely. And yeah, yeah. And you... I think that it's easy, like you, 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 I mean, you do want to be able to do it all, and the and the myth that society tells us is that we can and we have the right to. Mm. Um, not everybody is going to. I think we need to be freer to make the choices that are the best choices for us, and not what society is expecting us to do. But um, yeah, I think that the the constant um, juggle is. I don't feel like I'm doing any of this as well as I could be because I'm trying to juggle everything. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, like that, that's not, not an easy juggle. And, and some people can do that effectively. Other people choose to not and that, that's okay too. You know, I think we, we probably need more messages in our churches, in our society that says that all of the choices are available and whichever one you take is okay. Do you think um, churches do put more pressure on women as well? Do you, do well, you my experience, um, not so much from our, this current church, not from Soul Revival, but my experience has been that Whichever choice you make, there are some people who are going to criticise and have different, think that you should be doing it differently. And, um, you know, in some sectors, those voices are probably louder than others. You know, some people might not outwardly criticise, but you feel that judgement at times. And so, yeah, I think we've got to become better at being supporters of each other, not not critics of each other. Mm. I like that, being supporters, building one another up. That's after all what the Bible encourages us to do, isn't it? Not not tear each other down, but build each other up. I wonder if there's still a a dichotomy for for people that are really big fans of Beyonce too, because you're talking about there's a lot of that pressures and perhaps they identify with her because she has to experience those pressures, but Mm. then maybe some of her art makes people think I should be even better. I should be what she's like. And there's nothing wrong with being inspired, is there, to step into Mm. something um, bigger than you think Mm. you're possibly able to. Yeah, and I think that's what the polyphonic um, podcast sort of taps into, particularly mm. with coming back to the Black Lives Matter stuff too. I think it's really interesting that she really makes a bold statement at the Super Bowl by dressing like the Black Panthers because that's a really interesting um, semiotic or symbol to adopt. Um, going back to the 60s when the Black Panthers were around, there was a, um, a really interesting difference between the Martin Luther King um, part of the civil rights movement and the Malcolm X um, interpretation of the way forward. So Martin Luther King, being a, a Protestant minister himself, was talking about things like we need to love our white brothers and sisters, we need to go forward and the colour of our skin shouldn't um, define us, we should just be defined by the content of our character. Mm. But on the other hand, Malcolm X, which interestingly he was coming from a different theological perspective too, being a Muslim as well, a recent convert mm. to Islam, he uh, had a different set of influences and saw the whole situation differently. And so he was cons- he was perceived to be more militant than Martin Luther King and less conciliatory. So he was more arguing for a more forceful um african-american voice at the time and the black panther party for self-defense uh was a bunch of young people that emerged from the grassroots in in oakland from san francisco and it was basically a bunch of young 
men to start off with, but then it became men and women who started this Black Panther Party and their take on the whole situation was that they needed to provide answers to um, to the, the, the policing measures that were being undertaken in Oakland where uh, young black people were um, uh, targeted by police on occasions and so they got themselves a van they painted a big black panther on the side of their van and then they carried guns around so we've talked about this at an earlier podcast but what was quite striking about that is the uh the two the two guys huey particularly uh that started uh this new initiative uh understood the law because he was a law student and he understood that by american law they were allowed to carry guns around as long as they didn't use them so by actually carrying guns around dressing with black berets and frizzing their hair out to be more African, wearing black leather jackets and dark sunglasses, driving around in a bus, in a van rather, with a Black Panther on the side. They drove around looking for instances of police brutality and if they saw any instances where they were observing the police uh, being too harsh, they'd get out of the car with their guns and they'd stand there with their guns watching the police. And there's a famous instance where apparently they got out of the car when there was a black guy being beaten up in an alleyway and they saw police beating this guy up and they walked over to the police with carrying guns and the policeman came over and said, is there a bullet in that chamber of the gun? And, the, and Huey said, no, uh, LA law says we're not allowed to drive around in a car with a loaded firearm, so it isn't, and he cocks it, but it is now. And he didn't intend it in the initial instances to actually fire the gun. It was more an, more an intimidation device, and it got so much publicity. They even um, eventually started chapters of Black Panthers all over America. They went onto the floor of the uh, legislature in California when um, when Donald Ronald Reagan Donald Ronald Reagan was <laughs> Donald Reagan Ronald Reagan was the uh, uh, in charge of California at the time and before he became president and they went into the legislature all carrying guns and so uh, it actually descended pretty quickly into um, violence though and so yeah there's this real um, strong voice of young people standing up saying we are not going to tolerate um, any abuse of our civil rights unlike Martin Luther King they sided with Malcolm X so for a little while there the Black Panthers were actually bodyguards for Malcolm X so for Beyonce to come out with dress like Panthers mm. kind of I think I, I, I'm not an expert on this but it, it, it occurs to me that's a very strong semiotic to suggest that she's connecting with that more uh, that more uh, visceral voice of civil rights of Malcolm X rather than the more conciliatory tone mm. of Martin Luther King, and I think if you look at Black Lives Matter, it seems to me to be more of that Malcolm X kind of style, rather. Mm. So for her to, to champion that is quite a strong statement. Mm. I, think. I believe in uh, Homecoming. There's actually a Malcolm X. Uh, there's a Malcolm X quote that's played over and over again, which says, "The most disrespected person in America is the black woman." Yeah. Mm. And Beyonce is like interspersing different yeah. Um, yeah. quotes, you know, and it keeps going, yeah. going. So she's. She's definitely, I think that was, you're probably right, she's definitely identifying with that part of the movement. Um, I was also going to say there's a, there's a really, I found a really interesting quote from uh, a woman who wrote an article on The Ringer where they rated the top 100 Beyonce songs, which is an effort in itself. Um, but Kyla Marshall, she says, since 2016, uh, she, as in Beyonce, hasn't just become more forthcoming about her blackness but about her womanhood. She was always a beacon for girl power but in a nondescript way that left out any mention of her own experience. By her own admission, the Beyoncé of yesteryear was a young woman intent on pleasing everyone around her. 
grown up Bay is a mother of three who's died and been reborn in her marriage. She's been through some things, and people who have been through some things are generally more interesting than those who haven't. Mm. As such, it's hard to compare a song like Deja Vu, which she does with Jay-Z, to one like Bigger. They were made by totally different people, and yet they're each quintessentially mm. Beyonce. One is an expert dance song, musical in every way, funky from the floor up, and the other is a capital M message. 25-year-old Beyonce probably knew then, as she sings now, that she was part of something way bigger, but it's only Bay of her late 30s who could convincingly show us that that we all are that. I thought that was a really good um, summing up of that. Um, but she's obviously speaking so many different aspects of culture that are really important to her mm. and also to her own experience, Stu. As Christians, how... We, we're talking about critiquing embrace or embracing culture. How do how do we do that? And I know that you've done a lot of a lot of thinking around that recently. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, it'd be really good to move towards you know looking at what's happening, what's going on with Beyonce, to actually thinking a bit more about uh, the why. I'd like to think about that, and we have been using Ian Hussey as a sociologist to help mm. us to uh, to think about the why. Uh, and then after we think about why that might be happening sociologically, like then to think biblically, how, and Ian Hussey mm. embraces both those. Actually, it was it was Karen that introduced me to Ian Hussey just a little while mm. ago, so I'm still reading his stuff and really finding it helpful in this podcast. Mm. Uh, but uh, Karen, you know, Ian, Ian Hussey brings up themes of, uh, of any culture that you can look at a culture and not, not stereotype a culture, but... Mm. To, come to understand it do you do you see any themes in Beyonce that Ian Hussey's used in in his work I mean I, I'm thinking postmodernism and mm, pluralism yeah. are two things he says is very yeah. uh, are themes of our western culture do you mm. see any of that in in her work I definitely I think she's embracing aspects of religion um or parts of mm. you know um some of the morality things the mon- monogamy um the redemption themes that came out pretty clearly in her, in her and Jay Z's dealings with those, you know, times of their life with infidelity. But at the same time, she's not embracing all of, um, sort of the Christian faith. She's also embracing other aspects mm. of religious movements, um, of other cultural movements. So mm. I think yeah, pluralism is probably one of the, um, the concepts that would quite. Yeah, that that we're seeing being displayed in her, um, mm. yeah, in her work. Yeah, because we we've been trying to uh, use, you know, looking at different uh, music icons to help us mm. to unpack some of the things yep. that Ian Hussey is saying that it's good for us as Christians to be aware of as mm. we engage with culture, yep. and as we're doing today. You know, we're not just in, you know we're not just embracing everything Beyonce mm. is or critiquing yep. everything she yep. is. We're mm. Ian Hussey's really helpful because he's saying the Bible writers will both critique and embrace culture. So mm. it's, if we're going to do that, we need to have kind of, a, I suppose, some categories to look at. And as yeah. Karen was saying, the the two things there, the pluralism and postmodernism. I mean, first of all, Beyonce and postmodernism, for those that aren't super familiar with what postmodernism is, uh, just a little definition, postmodernism is what it's not. And that's a bit confusing, <laughs> but the whole idea of postmodernism is that we now live in an age that isn't modern. Mm. And the modern age can be defined as that time since the Industrial Revolution, right back in the early 1800s, mm. where machines begin to become so powerful that they replace our relationships yeah. and we can get more security from technology than we can from our community. And so that drives our individualism because we can become more individualistic because we get more choices mm. and we become more 
dominated by science and scientific endeavour and we became so dominated by the industrial machine that we've actually polluted our climate and we're now talking about can we roll back some of that, um, you know, that that over-dependence on, on machinery and coal mm. and fossil fuels. So it's actually killing our environment. But that whole idea of modernism is, you know, science is king and, mm. you know, the, the institution is king and, that, and queen and that, you know... You, hierarchical power is is dominant, and we dominate the environment, not w- live at harmony with the environment. Postmodernism is questioning all those old mm. ways of thinking and saying, yes, there's still science. We still need to be thinking scientifically, but you know, the has the church too closely aligned itself to that modern era and mm. become a modern institution itself with its hierarchies? And so Beyonce is speaking into that context of saying. Let's question the past. Let's question tradition, mm. and let's try and forge a new kind of society. Yeah. And you know, there's aspects of that that are quite admirable, but there are aspects of that that we would say, well, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. And you know, for example, um, taking bits and pieces of Christianity is actually a very postmodern thing yeah. to do. Taking yeah. some and not others. Yeah, how they um, can coexist together, yeah. even though they're not, they're not not embracing all of it, just taking yeah. bits of it. And I think um, one of the things that Hussey says about postmodernism is is that it is um, that sort of impossible juxtaposition of things put together that don't normally sit together. Yeah. And I think Lemonade is probably an example of where she's done that. So there's all these different genres on the one album. Yeah. They wouldn't normally sit together mm. <laughs> in an album, yeah. but she's she's done that. So mm. that's probably an example. I think you could also like, say the majority of her career like, mm. has been like that. There's yeah. She's talking about lots of different things that often sometimes contradict each other. Mm. Yeah, so uh, it, that's interesting, isn't it? Because on... Uh, some of her songs, she's she's experimenting with seventies R and B, and then then she's moving into nineties rock, and yep. then she's like using lots of horns, and there's all these yeah. different juxtaposition of things. Yeah. It's almost like a, you know, uh, in the song Love on Top, she's actually got almost like a structural thesis for postmodernism mm. because she's got like four key changes in the same song, mm. and she's using all this variety, and that was so popular she won a Grammy out of that, mm. and that yet on the same album. Uh, she's got a 1980s diva song in party it's like a mm. completely different mm. style and you know all of a sudden she and then then she's sort of taking past styles and not not just relying on trying to reinvent those things but actually creating something new out of those mm. things and i think what's helpful when you look at that is uh hussy another hussy category is pluralism Mm. so postmodernism is saying we're not modern anymore and we're rejecting those traditions and hierarchies and in in its place we're putting a more pluralistic society Mm. rather than a more homogeneous society which the homogeneous unit principle picks up on because it's identifying all these different homogeneous units in society that somehow have to work out how to live together and um, there's a a really interesting um, example of what Hussey talks about with pluralism to give a bit of a definition for us today from the Canberra Times of 2015. I might just read this out because I think it's helpful for us to understand it. Um, In Canberra Times in 2015, they write, what prevents Australia from descending into destructive, hateful divides is tolerance. It works in two ways. We accept that other people hold different views, but we also accept their right to share those views. Even, and this is where it can be difficult, if their views show little tolerance for others. These two elements of tolerance, not, not sorry, these two elements of tolerance do not always sit comfortably together. But pluralist countries rely on their citizens' ability to respect difference. It is that 
which makes our society work. Mm. So I find it interesting in Beyonce that she has pluralist elements in her songs. It's almost, for her fans, an articulation of how to live in harmony, at least with these music styles, and how mm. to bring those things together. But it's also saying something broader that we need to work out as human beings how to live yeah. together. But at the same time, she has these strong voices in, mm. in feminism and speaking up for the oppressed uh, and also within the Black Lives Matter mm. movement where she's seeking to stand up for the oppressed as well. Mm. And it's interesting to see how the church interacts with those two issues and not always comfortably. Like mm. I think it'd be interesting if we thought a bit more theologically now and think like mm. how, how do we engage with that? And I think the shock absorber is really helpful because again, not wanting to sound like a broken record, but it's about getting young people and older people to have a space where we can talk about these issues together. And it's important that we do that so that we can look at what's happening, ask ourselves why is this happening and then think biblically together. I mean, I remember growing up, it was there wasn't much space for conversation around popular music. And in fact, in our uh, local church, we weren't allowed to have guitars and drums in the church because some of our older generation saints still hadn't got their head around this new rock and roll music style, even by the 1980s. So 20 years after rock mm. and roll came along, they still thought the drums were syncopation and that was of the devil and we shouldn't bring that into the church. So I think we've come a long way from those kind of days of, of that bleak conversation, which was basically no, you can't do that, or yes, you can do this, which is what we do. But the shock absorber is saying, yeah, let, let's let the young people talk about their latest Beyonce record that they're listening to, and let's also reflect on that and say, oh, that's interesting reflection of our broader society, mm. and now how do we think theologically? I don't know, Karen, have you got any thoughts on mm. any anything biblically um, that we could, we could well, think uh, about in that? We're, we're in the middle of, or just sort of at the beginning of a study, um, a series in Judges, and one of the things that I was thinking about then as you were speaking is that in Judges we see that increased the increasing corruption and increasing um, you know, ungodliness of mm. a group of people, of the Israelites, and that's this cycle of God providing them with, you know, they call out to God eventually, he provides them with a judge who both saves, um, who, who sort of overcomes the oppressor and saves them. Um, but the theme of the judge who's given to the Israelites is reflective of the culture. Mm. So as they're getting more corrupt, these judges are getting more corrupt. Um, and so I think we're seeing some of that in our society too, that those who we you know, revere, who we look up to, who become major influences of our world are reflective of our world, you know. So... Um, mm. That's really interesting. So her leadership changes. is sort of, yeah. you can see a parallel there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. so they might be making changes and adapting culture and leading culture, but they're also reflecting the culture. And so from a Christian perspective, I think we need to critique, uh, you know, which as what aspects of culture are actually really more um, those aspects of culture that we see in judges being condemned rather than being upheld so mm. it was you know that we see the cycle of those judges come in um the oppression ends and there's this period of peace um and that that period of peace is where things are back to the way they sort of should be um and so yeah i think that that would potentially be one frame that we might want to think through mm. as we look at yes the the things that are leading our culture the characteristics that are that we see most prevalent in our culture are they 
more consistent with that period of peace or are they consistent with that period of oppression? And, That's interesting. And, yeah, um, ungodliness. And it's interesting mm. that she's um, thinking in terms of some political frameworks to try and answer mm. problems of oppression. But then um, when we look, when we jump in the New Testament, look at the Gospels and yep. we see, you know, Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, mm. it's just incredibly articulate and beautiful how Jesus mm. unpacks the difference between the kingdom of heaven and earthly kingdoms. Mm. And he contrasts uh, earthly power with, with the power of God that it's, he sort of almost subverts our power structures. And, yeah. you know, when he starts off by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, it's an incredible statement to say mm. that uh, if we understand our own humanity, that we've fallen and we're sinful and we grieve at our own sin, then mm. we're actually able to turn to God and look to him for uh, solutions mm. to the human problems that we've created yeah. ourselves within yeah. our societies. And it's not to say we shouldn't look for political solutions to mm. problems that we have, but we need to be careful we don't become idolatrous in our, yeah, in our, absolutely. our search for political yeah. answers like the people of Israel were looking to the Canaanite um, human-made mm. uh, idolatry yeah. to solve their issues yeah. instead of relying solely on Yahweh. Mm. So I think with Jesus we see yeah. such a great leader that we can yeah. stay focused on uh, on how he, he travels through a pluralistic world himself. I mean, one of the things that Hussey makes an interesting point is that uh, the New Testament was written to a pluralistic culture, that in mm. the Roman culture there were all these different thought systems all coexisting. In the Roman world they were being oppressed uh, routinely by the Romans mm. when they saw them as a threat yeah. to their dominant system, mm. which is always the case, I suppose. But in the Greek system, when you look at cities like Ephesus or uh, some of the you know Corinth, other mm. places there where where the gospel takes root, you know Corinth, for example, is a far more pluralistic society even mm. than Rome, and there's all these different ideas. It's like a marketplace of ideas, and yeah. I, I think it's interesting to see how the gospel was preached into those contexts. It gives us a lot of mm. uh, focus for how we can continue to preach the same undying message of the gospel without yeah. changing it but into these different pluralistic yeah. contexts yeah 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 and you know that quote you read earlier joel um where beyonce is saying that you know or someone was saying that that black women are the most um oppressed you know black and women mm. most sort of um, there's a quote from malcolm x yeah the um the thinking about that cycle of that we're talking about in judges that the answer, the solution to it isn't more violence and more activism, it's God providing a way out. Mm. Um, and so I think that's another thing that we can be sort of reflecting on, that ultimately um, it makes it makes sense to stand up against oppression. Mm. And we, you know, God calls us to do that mm. as well. But ultimately it's like, we, you know, it's not in our um, solutions that we, we're going to find the ultimate solution. Mm, that's really helpful because mm. I, I think one of the things that Beyonce's done and the Black Lives Matter movement has done is drawn more attention to the plight of uh, Aboriginal communities in mm. Australia, for example. And, you know, the Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody um, can be so frustrating in a sense that we've actually put a spotlight on the facts that, that uh, Indigenous people are overrepresented mm. in our prison system yeah. and so many of them have died in incarceration. Uh, and yet sometimes you look at that and you think, what have we done to fix that? So I suppose the voice of people like Beyonce is saying, hey, don't forget about this. Yeah. Like This is a really important yeah, issue. These things are, yeah. uh, some of their solutions, might, might we may mm. embrace and critique different solutions. Yep. Um, you know, some Christians like 
you know, for myself, for example, I'm more comfortable, I suppose, because I'm a Protestant Christian, I'm more comfortable within the framework of Martin Luther King as he looks at some of these issues rather than the Malcolm X um, kind of school of thought. But but I, I think it's interesting that we can have that conversation and, mm. and it's like uh, interesting that we have so much to offer as Christians that we can offer hope in the midst of this that is that Jesus... Uh, came and he lived with us he lived amongst us and he saw oppression like he mm. called out the soldiers for the, the oppression that they dealt out to people he called out the religious leaders in the jewish yeah. community who were oppressing people who were just trusting their leadership when they were bad leaders like the judges were and but yet jesus gives us this clear uh way and you know i think it's fascinating that we keep coming back to John 14, but Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. He was very confidently yeah. claiming that he could solve our problems. Mm. And I think as Christians, uh, we we don't want to shut down conversations because we find them uncomfortable or maybe because the people who are raising the topics may not come from our particular point of view. Mm. But it's the, the idea that we can have a conversation around that and then look to Jesus for our answers is yeah. really exciting, I think. Yeah. I think talking about that conversation, um, we had a, we had a, a question sent in from Callan, um, and you can send any questions you have, guys, to joel at shockersorbit.com.au. Um, Callan, who's a, a friend of ours, um, he said that he was uh, inspired to write you this question after listening to the end of Season 3, where you, um, we talked about Squid Game and a conversation you had with your son, Eli Stu. Mm. And his question is, how do we help church members to have those kind of conversations? It seems hard enough for those in paid ministry to enter into that with open curiosity and bring biblical wisdom to bear. But for most, we want to close it down and just say, oh, don't do not do it because we're just uncomfortable and out of our depth and we don't know what to say. Or perhaps the idea of discipleship is Christians just do this and not do this. Um, so his question is, in terms of the shock absorber, how have we helped people, youth leaders, uh, any kind of leaders that we have, or just parishioners, to have those organic discipleship conversations? I think I think part of it is telling stories and sharing stories of how we approach that particular issue. I mean, I'd be interested, Karen, have you got any thoughts about as you brought up your two kids, how you had those difficult cultural conversations with kids at all? Have you got any experience in that yourself? Um, I think that I, I, a particular example doesn't come to mind, but I think that the reason why you can have those conversations with your kids is because you've got a history of relationship. And it's based on that solid trust that, you know, we can go to those difficult places where we need to, un, you know, talk about something that's not comfortable. Mm. Um, so in our churches, we are more able to do that when we have a basis of a unified, um, you know, sort of cohesive community of people who know each other, who've journeyed through things together. And then we can explore those hard things because there's a bit of grace um, that people might give us you know, that when we have differences of opinion and we can have those conversations without the relationships breaking apart. Um, but in churches where, you know, and we've talked about that a lot, that the shock absorber is what mm. helps us to have those long-term, low-key relational sort of um, characteristics of our, of our culture. So we can, we, can, we, can, we can just have a lounge room discussion where we say we're going to actually talk about a really hard topic and we know that there's going to be differences of opinion. And so as I reflected on my kids, that's the same type of thing, you know. We, we know that we're a family. We know that doesn't ma really matter if we disagree here, but we can, we can delve into this because of that solid 
foundation of, of relationship that we have. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And, and you raise the second point I was going to raise, actually, which is that we can model how mm. to do that as well, that yeah. we actually put it into practice, not just teach it. We yeah. can teach it. But, Karen, you know, we just recently we had a really interesting forum we had with our young adults on a Saturday night with regard to um, women preaching in mm. the church as well. Like, yep. Did you want to share a bit about that? Because I think that was also a really good modelling opportunity to talk about yeah. something we can we can find that Christians can disagree with sometimes? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's because we were able to have that conversation because the people who were in the room um, trusted each other, uh, had, you know, had invested in each other in, in terms of, you know, relational capital. So um, it wasn't to a room of people who didn't know each other. Um, I don't know that it would have been helpful if, if we were in a different place to have two leaders of the church have a different opinion. But we were able to have that conversation. You and I have a different view on you know, the answer to that question. Um, and we were able to sort of graciously have that conversation, acknowledge that there's differences, acknowledge that we don't always have to agree on it, on everything to still be unified, to still mm. show love to each other, to still be able to serve together. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so, I, but I do think it's hard to have those conversations in, um, you know, a church community where that's not the case. And it can fracture relationships if... Mm people see their leaders disagreeing or they have disagreements with it, with each mm. other. It can break relationships apart. So I think you have to, you know, wade carefully into, like in terms of Callum's question, wade carefully into the discussion but um, and choose wisely when to have it. But you've got to do some work on establishing um, an environment that's going to be conducive to having the, having that discussion. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that some of our younger women are really thinking through some of the issues that Beyonce has raised and mm. then for us to uh, say, well, why don't we all have a talk about it? One of the things we've yeah. lost in our culture at the moment is that group conversation yeah. that we used to do more easily in, in previous generations. Um, unfortunately, social media has replaced that that forum that we used to have mm. as communities to talk yeah. through issues. But we've tried to recapture that in our church that, like Karen said, our young people hang out with each other every Saturday night around the Word of God and socially and mm. we interact with that so they mm. know us and we're safe. Yeah. It's not to say that conversations aren't going to be messy sometimes and hard yeah. but uh, with Karen and I, for example, that we both uh, agree on the, the fundamental gospel tenets that we then can say that, uh, yeah, that there are things in the Bible that we can, it's okay to ask questions, it's okay to uh, mm. explore that together in a safe way and that if... If we can explore that together, it's it's exciting to know that in a Jesus-shaped community, we're all a priesthood of all believers and we're all sitting under the authority of God's word and God's word is the authority mm. and we can talk about that together and try mm. and work out how to express that. So yeah. within our families, I think the same thing. I think if parents can be uh, modelling to the children that you can have discussions, safe discussions about things that you disagree on, when it comes to their voice, we can listen to them and they don't feel like they have to agree with everything we say straight away they can mm. journey towards that or yeah. maybe develop their own ideas on yeah. some things yeah yeah because i think hussey talks about the importance of trust like part of the anti you know institutional the you know some of these um concepts that hussey talks about uh because of the losing of trust mm. and so yeah if we can have an environment where trust is restored and maintained then we can it's a robust environment where we can explore some hard stuff. In relation to Callan's question, what uh, something that he might be able to do in his particular ministry context to 
um, perhaps build that trust a little bit more? I think the great thing is to encourage the youth leaders not to just see youth ministry as a part-time job that they just happen to be doing like they'd be working at Woolies or something, to not think, oh, I'll do this for a couple of years and then I'll get someone else can have a go because I've done my bit. But to build a sense that there's this ongoing long-term low-key relational strategy mm. where the youth leaders are actually in relationship with each other and working out what it is to be Christian together and then mm. growing the young people up into that relationship. Now, that's not to say that every youth leader has to be a long-term youth leader, but if mm. there is an opportunity for some of the youth leaders to do, to be literally be a, a Christian peer group. I mean, Jesus said, mm. uh, I no longer call you servants, I'll call you my friends if you do what I say, which is to love one another. So if there is a clear expression of that love yeah. from the youth leaders, the young people can see a relational reality to the moral constructs and the ethical mm conversations it's not just a philosophical conversation yeah. it's actually a lifestyle that we're talking about and then to be included in that on a weekly basis as karen said where people can build trust and what we like to call a spiritual bank account if you're yeah. if you're depositing in someone's life regularly then you can make a withdrawal every now and again without completely decimating the bank account but unfortunately um sometimes our churches are so structured that the young people don't get to see the older people living their lives because they're in mm. a separate service so I like intergenerational ministry because it lets everyone be in the same room together so that they can all yep. hear those conversations and be a part of it. So to structure uh, an opportunity or a space where old and young can yep. have a meal together regularly and then every now and again in that informal environment to have a formal forum yep. on some safe issues that are really easy to talk about, that means that over time you can build up yep. trust so that you can then have difficult conversation sometimes yeah. too like a beyonce appreciation party or something we could have that <laughs> that would be a fun thing to do yeah so and i think it, i think it's also about so providing the space and the the time to have those safe conversations but also to be prepared to listen mm. i think that's one of the things like in direct answer to sort of callum's question and your example with you know eli and squid games you did take the time to listen to his perspective mm. Um, and so I think that we're more likely to be heard if we listen first. Mm. So I think that's another just practical thing. That, mm. But also I, I think we've got to find ways to actually call people to a higher level of discipleship. Like that it's not about just accepting and tolerating people's, mm. you know, apathy or, um, or spiritual immaturity. That there's a place, and, and we've got to model it obviously first, but there's a place to actually in those safe relationships to actually call people up to, to step up. Mm. We're actually called to be growing. Um, it's not okay to just sit in a place where we're immature. We, we should be growing. And we, we're only going to have um, credibility to do that if we're modelling it ourselves. Mm. So we need to be the people who we're calling our younger people to aspire to mm. be, mm. Um, but be prepared to listen to their journey and their struggles and, you know, sensitively talk... Our, our journey into that space. Yeah, I think that's really helpful actually because Christianity is countercultural. It's mm. not cultural. So we're not doing the same thing as Beyonce trying to reflect the culture and then yeah. build on that. We're actually doing something different. We're, we're listening to Jesus as he has mm. set um, up a new framework which sometimes can be confronting for adults and for young people. Mm. So we're not just trying to, listen, as Karen said, we're listening uh, to young people and encouraging them to listen to God. So yeah. not just listen to us, but yeah. we're, we're all trying to listen to what God has to say. Yeah. And so I think part of it with Eli with the Squid Games was there was a point in the conversation after I'd heard his impressions mm. of it, which really helped. 
and and it wasn't just a ticker box thing. I wasn't, oh, listen to Eli, then tell him what I <laughs> yeah. think. It's not that. It's like, listen, share with him what I'm thinking, but then together go, well, I wonder what the Bible has to mm. say about this and to build a culture where we're trying to seek to find answers yeah. in the Bible that are authoritative. And the problem, I think, which we might get to in future podcasts, is sometimes I think we can very cleverly employ certain hermeneutic devices and certain theological devices to almost make the Bible say whatever we want it to say and emphasize certain parts over other parts if it suits our argument. Mm. So we've got to be careful that we come humbly to the word of God and be willing to be shaped by it, need to be challenged. And I think if we have that humility to to adjust our thinking to God's thinking, then that's a really good place to start mm. as well. But yeah, that thinking is is uh, mm. listening is really good, Karen. Yeah. I reckon. Yeah. Mm. yeah, listening to each other, and uh, I I always like the fact that you talk about shoes that we're not just reconciled to God, but we're reconciled mm. to each other. So that allows us to be able to, regardless of the age yeah. or the situation or what we're talking about, that we can actually be in the same space to be able to listen to each other and really understand or try and understand what what we're discussing there. So, mm. anything else to add? this episode guys just one thing on that is like i think coming back to that black lives matter theme of beyonce which i think we can pick up in future episodes as we look at some other artists Uh, you know i grew up in the sutherland shire surrounded by anglo people and i didn't know any aboriginal people growing up until we moved to the country in narandra in new south wales and in narandra half the town uh, were indigenous and half the town were white so i had lots of friends at school that were indigenous friends In, in fact one of my best friends was an indigenous student and uh, my dad uh, had moved our family to Narandra, which is in country New South Wales in Australia. New South Wales is uh, about eight hours away from where I live now in Sydney, um, where I grew up. And we moved down to Narandra. And when, I, when dad's time as a bank manager at Narandra came to an end, we moved back to Sydney. My big question is, oh, where are all the Indigenous people? Mm. Like, what, I didn't notice it before. And mm. then, then when I realised that it was actually um, Anglo people who were just basically moved all the Aboriginal people out and all the Dharawal people had been, we'd taken all their land and we, you know, it's quite a confronting thing mm. to, to actually see that and it made me feel very sorry. And, you know, where I live now at Grace Point, uh, there's actually a scar tree at the bottom of my block that is, a scar tree is where uh, Indigenous people have carved a canoe out of the bark of a tree and then when they've taken the bark off the tree, it's left a scar and mm. that stays for hundreds of years. And this scar has probably been there for over 100 years mm. and the council has actually not let the people who built on that particular block knock it down so it's still there. So I often talk to my boys about that and say, see that scar tree, like this land we live on now is where the Dharawal people lived. And mm. and so that that can be quite confronting for us to actually come to terms with the oppression that, that our culture has enacted on others and continues to do so. So I think it can be quite confronting for us uh, as Christians to say that you know some of the things we love about our culture might actually not be that good mm-hmm. and that's one example but you know there's others as well we're very materialistic we're very consumeristic and you know being willing to read the Bible and be confronted by it and changed by God's word is is a, a good place mm-hmm. for us to be if we're going to expect our young people to do that yeah. as well mm-hmm. I think so and I think to wrap up this episode there was a there was a quote um by someone in Entertainment Weekly, and he noticed how Beyonce was the defining pop star for the 2010s, and they stated, no one dominated music in the 2010s like Queen Bay, explaining that her songs, album rollouts, stage presence, social justice initiatives, and disruptive public relations strategy have influenced the way we've used music since 2010. But uh, 
and reflecting on what you've just said there, Stu, that not everything in our culture is good, that, that we should firstly be listening to Jesus and encouraging others to listen to God mm. and finding those authoritative answers in the Bible. I think that's a really good point to finish on, is that that's what we, we can embrace and critique culture by doing that, is that we'll listen, we'll, we'll see what's happening in culture, but first of all, we're going to listen to Jesus. So I think that's a really good way to mm. sum it up. Um, thank you for joining us, Stu. Really appreciate it. Really great conversation. So thank you very much. And Karen, thank you very much for joining us as well. It was awesome. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you very fun. much. Anyway, we'll finish up with the one way. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. Thanks for your thoughts too, bro. One way. <laughs> Thank you.